You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie. The greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. M is for the man who sold the world. Oh, one of my mm. favourite Bowie albums. So the personnel, David Bowie, vocals, guitar, stylophone, organ, saxophone. Mick Ronson, guitars, backing vocals. Tony Visconti, bass guitar, piano, guitar, recorder, producer, backing vocals. Mick Woody Woodmancy, drums, percussion. Ralph Mace, Moog, modular, synthesizer. And Ken Scott, engineer. Now, John Cambridge was the original drummer on the record, but he couldn't nail certain parts of the songs, particularly uh, but the wild bit in the Supermen couldn't he? So Bowie told Cambridge they were letting him go, not because of his drumming, because they wanted to bring somebody in who could help with the arrangements. There was a quote from John Cambridge, wasn't it? We, I know we've done him in, uh, in J, but he said, I couldn't get it right. And even Mick Ronson was saying, come on, it's easy. It makes you feel even worse. Yeah, that's loads of pressure, isn't it? And uh, the funny thing is, I mean, I don't know how well Woody Woodmansey is known for his uh, arrangements. Mm. We'll have to well, ask him, won't we? we I mean, will. And you've got uh, what was uh, just the burgeoning genius of arrangements in Mick Ronson as oh, well. So yeah. he was a smokescreen. Apparently, uh, a, a John Cambridge could hear uh, Angie Bowie saying to David in another part of the house, go and tell him, go on. (laughs) Go on, you manner him out. Go, oh. go upstairs and tell him. So, <laughs> that's when he went upstairs and said, "Oh yeah, I think we're going to need a, a, an arranging drummer." Oh, <laughs> which has got to be the worst excuse in the world ever, hasn't it? Not even musical differences, is it? Didn't he feel so bad he paid him his petrol to get home? Oh, something like that. Um, yeah. Um, but, anyway, so Mick Ronson ended up suggesting Woody brought in, and it was recorded at Trident Studios, wasn't it? April nineteen seventy. Yeah, so, I mean, let's just set the scene here, right? Mm, okay, so um, in 1970, so it was a year previous that uh, Bowie had had a hit with Space Oddity. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people did view that, including, as we know, Tony Visconti, uh, as a novelty record. Yeah. You know, and so that was kind of a bit of a double-edged sword for Bowie and kind of a little bit of a millstone for him, in a way. And then he released a pretty star with Mark Bolan on guitar. That's right. And that was a flop. And so he wasn't in a particularly good place, was he? No. So he just got his he's just got his, uh, his his new place, Haddon Hall, and he had his band move in with him. Yeah, and of course, yeah, Angie's there. His new wife Angie is there because he got married in uh, at the end of March, just as the recording session started, which um, may a bit well, you know, kind of played into the way it was created. We think, don't we? It sounds like it most certainly. And also, really, really hugely important to this is the fact that at Haddon Hall, one of the regular visitors there was his half brother Terry. Yeah, who was actually a, a, a voluntary resident. 
resident at Cane Hill Asylum, which we will look at in mm. a short while. Uh, but this is a, it's a thread that we've mentioned many times before because Bowie mentions it many times throughout his life. The fact that his brother uh, was schizophrenic yeah. and was very, very fragile and frail and Bowie often uh, just questioned as to whether he had anything of the, a similar kind of a diagnosis to be found. Yeah, he? he feared he would go the same way. So as regarding the sessions, so they built a primitive studio in the basement at Haddon Hall and they lived on very little money and they were skint weren't they there's a lot of them living there uh, the ate food often burnt to a cinder by Angie which is a, it's a great passage in Woody's book in the spider from Mars where he talks about you know this food and how it was uh, well how it was made yeah it, it is hilarious that section of the book uh, also crucially Bowie was just about still being managed by Kenneth Pitt mm. um, and so uh, yeah Tony DeFries is coming over the hill as we know and yes. uh, to, to just change Bowie's career completely so this from Nick Pegg's book uh, The Complete David Bowie uh, which is really really great but it was originally from Disc and Music Echo, February 1970. As the first side will be completely augmented, it means specially writing a whole new set of material. The second side will be just me with guitar. Oh, will it now, ah, David? Yeah. And so uh, Tony Visconti said at the time the intention was for the man who sold the world to be there, Sergeant Pepper. No shortage of ambition then, was there? Nope. So the man who sold the world is a third album by Bowie, released in the US by Mercury Records on the 4th of November 1970, and then in April 1971 in the UK, recorded the album with producer Tony Visconti at Trident in London and Advision in West London. And although uh, author David Buckley has described Bowie's previous record, David Bowie, so the Stroke Space Oddity, as it's become known, as the first Bowie album proper, uh, Roy Carr and Charles Shaw Murray in The Enemy have said of The Man Who Sold The World, this is where the story really starts. Uh, departing from the largely acoustic music of Bowie's second album, uh, Man Who Sold The World is generally considered, well, a hard rock heavy metal piece. It's impossible to really nail what it is. There's a mm. bit of prog in there, and yeah. there's definitely metal in there. It's a hybrid album, isn't it? It is. So it is. let's look at the writing and recording of it. The album was written and rehearsed at Haddon Hall, Beckenham, an Edwardian mansion converted to a block of flats that was described by one visitor as having the ambience uh, like Dracula's living room. Uh, as Bowie was preoccupied with his new wife Angie at the time, the music was largely arranged by guitarist Mick Ronson and bassist forward slash producer Tony Visconti. Although Bowie officially is credited as a composer of all the music on the album. Biographer Pete Doggett quoted Visconti saying, the songs were written by all four of us. We'd jam in the basement and Bowie would just say whether he liked them or not. This is a real bone of contention, it isn't is, it? Okay. It is. So Pete Doggett, in his narrative, he said, the band, sometimes with Bowie contributing guitar, sometimes not, would record an instrumental track which might or might not be based upon an original Bowie idea. So already we're in nebulous territory mm -hmm. here. Then at the last possible moment, Bowie would reluctantly uncurl himself from the sofa on which he was lounging with his wife and dash off a set of lyrics. Despite his annoyance with Bowie's fixation on married life during the recording of The Man Who Sold the World, Visconti still rated it as his best work with Bowie until uh, Scary Monsters in 1980. So Bowie himself was quoted in 1998 um, as saying, I really did object to the impression that I did not write the songs on The Man Who Sold the World. You only have to check out the chord changes. No one writes chord <laughs> changes like that. This is something that um, that Rick Wakeman famously said, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. When he was running through the uh, piano piece for uh, Life on Mars, That's he right. said, right, OK, there's these chords here. You would expect this chord, but no. Bowie goes here and there and then there. And yeah. nobody does that kind of thing. So he's borne out by a, a, an absolutely amazing musician in Rick Wakeman. Yeah. Uh, but you can also say that 
all the other musicians on the album did stick together and say that they really did have a massive hand in writing the music. So we weren't there, were we? We weren't. Um, but uh, Bowie said the width of a circle and the Superman, for example, were already in existence before the sessions began. So Ralph Mace played a Moog modular synthesizer, which was borrowed from George Harrison. And Mace was a 40-year-old concert pianist who was also the head of classical music at Mercury Records. Wow, OK. So moving on now to the music and lyrics, much of the album has a distinct heavy metal edge, as we mentioned, that distinguishes it from Bowie's other releases. And it's been compared to acts like Led Zepp and Black Sabbath. Of course it has. Well, understandably, yeah. Um, a thrilling record. And again, you know, we have discussed the fact that the, when these records got re-released, you know, uh, chronologically all over the shop, then mm. it was just really strange. And, and, and uh, the cover work as well, uh, the actual cover of the album, oh, which yeah. changed, didn't help. So let's have a look at the different cover artworks. Okay, so the original 1970 US release of The Man Who Sold the World employed a cartoon-like cover drawing by Bowie's friend Michael J. Weller, featuring a cowboy in front of the Cane Hill Mental Asylum. And we will uh, we'll have a quick look at that now. Yeah, we uh, will. But so, we'll have a look at the covers uh, before we go into oh, that, Bob, I think. Yeah, on, so we'll... I've got them all. I know, you... I can see them. You brought them here. Yeah, so uh, that, you have to say, the actual cartoon version, which we just discussed there, mm. is pretty pretty rubbish. It's not the best, is it? It's um, just, I mean, it's taken, actually. I mean, the cowboy in it is supposed to be John Wayne, isn't it? That's right. It? It's a still of John Wayne with his sort of, uh, with his rifle sort of at his side. And that was used as a template for that. And then you can see, uh, you know, a cartoon drawing of Cane Hill in the background. I mean, there's no uh, indication. If you looked at that cover, you didn't know anything about Bowie. There's nothing in that would suggest the kind of music that was contained within it. No, I mean, that looks almost like a kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek, one of the maybe Top of the Pops albums or, yeah. you know, it just it's very of its time and all that, but there's also a cartoon on the back of what looks like, you know, uh, there's a, a woman there look like in a, a dancing outfit, there's a yeah. boat with dungarees and a flat cap, and another guy in a suit, and they're all saying, oh, by Jingo. I mean, random doesn't even cover no. it, does it? I mean, to me, it looks like one of those sort of budget, you know, sampler releases that used to be all the rage, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s? Yeah. Yeah, and, and the way that David Bowie is written is quite... I, I like it, but it, it just doesn't give you the sense of foreboding that you would find if you actually opened up the uh, record and played it. Not at all. And so it was followed, and we'll go into all this, but we'll talk oh. about it now because I've got it here, the uh, the original dress cover. Some oh. people call it the drag cover, don't they? Um, but uh, this is a, an original version of it, which is obviously uh, one of my pride and joys. But So uh, you've not let me really have a proper look at that, have no. you? Because I don't have an original version of that, which uh, changed hands for a lot of money these days they do they go for about i don't know is it about one and a half grand or yeah, something yeah. like that i mean uh, as we know uh, the david bowie kind of um uh, the prices of his material just went through the roof when he yeah. when he passed away yeah. and, and and not least this you know it's a Ooh. hugely collectible album uh, and you can and if you want to know whether you're buying the right one or not uh, then this uh the, the matrix uh, on the uh, the run out of the record the the proper one is stamped the one the one that is a bootleg and it has been well bootlegged this is just written in hand uh, and this some other uh, various flaws in the uh, mm. even the original ones they spelled Tony Visconti wrong on the original pressing I think oh, that's do the they? way right. yeah okay. something like that uh, but also the texture of the sleeve is all a bit spoddish but the texture of the sleeve will like, let you know as to whether it's original or not wasn't there something as well to do with uh, the way it was, the photograph was cropped wasn't it cropped slightly differently to the you know the, the original bona fide stuff yeah I think that they had to blow it up Slightly, just to be able to nick the image, and so I, I think some of the uh, is it a frame? Yeah, the frame, the silver frame uh, there on the corner. I think there's a little bit less of that uh, okay. on the bootleg. And then we go over to the German release of it, which Ooh. is on the floor here, which you're, you're looking at, and it looks like a very large beer mat. 
uh, but don't use it as one because no. it's very, very collectible. And it is strange. It's yeah, it's Bowie's again a, a, an illustration of Bowie with blue hair. Mm. Uh, so predating Molly Sugden. In uh, are you being served? Just about, I think. Yeah, just, just about. about yeah. But, um, but Bowie's head is attached to a big hand, which is about to flick uh, the Earth mm. off into space, and he's also got some blue, yellow, and purple wings. Yeah, it's a great image, very striking indeed. And it I, is again. I don't know what it means. It almost looks Monty Python esque, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. He looks very Terry Gilliam actually very thinking much, about very it. Very much there. so. Yeah, and also on the on the back, you've got a sort of black and white photo of Bowie, haven't you, with his beret on and his overcoat. And the yeah, list. all that taken from the same sessions as the other version of the album and then the album that most of us will first have been aware of mm. uh, which is the one with uh, what we call a kicking cover yeah sure uh, which is a picture of Bowie and uh, yeah obviously he's kicking yeah that it, makes sense in, in his Ziggy Stardust phase of course that was reissued in 72 yeah on the back of the uh, success of Ziggy Stardust yeah. so so that is it but going back to the first one as you say it's got John Wayne on the front go figure and he is in front of uh, the asylum and the asylum being Cane Hill yeah uh, so let's have just a quick look at that because it is pertinent for things that we mentioned earlier on it um, is alright so Cane Hill so of course as mentioned before this is where Terry David's half brother was a patient the hospital had its origins in the third Surrey County pauper lunatic asylum designed by Charles Henry Howell built in two stages between 1882 and 1888 a design which involved a radiating pavilion layout was original and the hospital was taken over by London County Council in 1889. The hospital itself took in a large number of discharged mentally ill servicemen during the First World War, the earliest patient recorded there being admitted in 1915. So on the 13th of November 2010, a fire took hold in the administration block and went on to destroy all but the front facade of the building. The fire also destroyed the iconic clock tower, which is seen on the album. Yeah. Uh, at about midnight, firefighters saw the clock tower crash to the ground in the blaze. The fire had been started in the basement of the building, drafted in its way up through the ground and first floors before finally destroying the roof. Wow, so, you know, convoluted history. Yeah, OK. So let's get back to the cover, shall we? Yeah. So uh, Michael Weller, whose friend was a patient there, suggested the idea after Bowie had asked him to create a design that would capture the music's foreboding tone. Hmm. Mm. Drawing on pop art styles, he depicted a dreary main entrance block to the hospital with a damaged clock tower, as discussed. And, you know, for the design's foreground, he used that picture of John Wayne, you know, as a template for a cowboy figure, wearing a 10-gallon hat and a rifle, which was supposedly meant as an allusion to the song Running Gun Blues. Yeah, and well, I don't recall Running on Blues particularly being about a cowboy. No. So Bowie suggested Weller incorporate the exploding head signature on the cowboy's hat, a feature he'd previously used on his posters while a part of the arts lab. He also added an empty speech balloon for the cowboy figure, which was intended to have the line, roll up your sleeves and show us your arm, which is a pun on record players, guns and drug use. Right. Uh, but Mercury, the label, found the idea too risque and the balloon was left blank. <laughs> Bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. According to Bowie's biographer, Nicholas Penn, at this point, David's intention was to call the album Metropolist, a play on Fritz Lang's Metropolis. The title would remain on the tape boxes even after Mercury had released the album in America as the man who sold the world. And Bowie was enthusiastic about the finished design, but he soon reconsidered the idea and had the art department at Phillips, which was a, you know, a subsidiary of Mercury, wasn't it, enlist photographer Keith McMillan to shoot an alternative cover. OK, so this is a dress sleeve. Mm -hmm. The shoot took place in a domestic environment, which was Haddon Hall, in the living room where Bowie reclined on the chaise long in a cream and blue satin man's dress which yeah. we 
have previously discussed an early indication of his interest in exploiting his androgynous appearance. The dress was designed by British fashion designer Michael Fish. It has also been said that his bleached blonde locks falling below shoulder level in the photo were inspired by a pre-Raphaelite painting by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Ooh, so in the US, Mercury rejected Macmillan's photo and released the album with Weller's design as its cover instead, much to Bowie's displeasure, apparently, although he successfully lobbied the label to use the photo for the record's release in the UK. In 1972, he said that Weller's design was horrible, but reappraised it in 1999, saying he actually thought the cartoon cover was really cool. And while promoting The Man Who Sold The World, of course, in the US, Bowie wore the Mr Fish dress in February 71 on his first promo tour and during interviews, despite the fact the Americans had no knowledge of the as yet unreleased UK cover. Yeah, and also uh, we, we've documented the fact that when he went over to America and he was wearing his man's dress, he, mm. they wouldn't let him into some restaurants and clubs, right. would they? No. And he got called all names. Uh, yeah, and he just uh, a quite a brave thing to do, actually. Definitely. So the 1971 German release, talked about, uh, presented a winged hybrid creature with Bowie's head and hand for a body, preparing to flick the earth away. This is a very collectible version. Even the bootleg of this German release is highly collectible. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Wow, and, okay. Uh, yeah, another story is that before he was relieved of his duties, Kem Pitt, Bowie's manager at the time, set about trying to secure the services of world-famous artists to provide the cover for The Man Who Sold The World, so it gets even more ridiculous. Yeah. The shortlist included Andy Warhol and David Hockney. Now, shortlists are dead easy, aren't they? You, of just, get they a, you are. just get a pen and a piece of paper <laughs> and you write down a shortlist. Yeah. We're getting Andy Warhol, who we know was uh, deeply unimpressed with uh, Ken Pitt anyway, yeah. and didn't seem hugely impressed with David Bowie further down the line. Uh, little chance, really. Yeah, absolutely. So in 1972, the world reissue by RCA, as just mentioned, used the black and white picture of Ziggy, referred to as the kicking cover. This image remained uh, the cover art on reissues until 1990 when Ryko Disc released the, the, well, decided to reinstate the dress cover, and the dress cover has appeared on subsequent reissues of the album, as it should do, because that is the it, that is the true cover in my eyes, anyway. Absolutely. So, uh, The Man of Solar World was generally more successful commercially and critically in the US than in the UK when it was finally released. Melody Maker and Enemy found it surprisingly excellent and rather hysterical, respectively. <laughs> Surprisingly excellent. Ooh, damn by faint praise. John Mendelssohn of the Rolling Stone called the album uniformly excellent and commented that Tony Visconti's use of echo, phasing and other techniques on Bowie's voice serves to reinforce the jaggedness of Bowie's words and music, which he interpreted as oblique and fragmented images that are almost impenetrable separately, but which convey with effectiveness an ironic and bitter sense of the world when considered together. Paid by the word, then. Yes. Sales were not high enough to dent the charts in either country at the time. However, it made number 26 in the UK and number 105 in the US following its re-release on the 25th of November 1972 in the wake of uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. The Man Who Sold the World has since been cited as inspiring the goth rock, dark wave and science fiction elements of work by artists such as Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, Gary Newman, John Fox and Nine Inch Snails. In his journal, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana listed it at number 45 in his top 50 favourite albums. And of course, in 1993, Nirvana covered the Man Who Sold the World's title track for their TV special MTV Unplugged in New York. It's also been claimed that glam rock began with the release of this album, though it's also attributed to uh, Mark Boland's appearance on Top of the Pops in December 1970, wearing glitter to perform what would be his first UK hit under T-Rex name, Rider White Swan. 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. So uh, let's look at the album track by track. So Width of a Circle, it's the opening track of the album, and it's a really amazing, heavy rocking... Uh, what is it, Bob? I mean, it's it's riftastic. Well, it's definitely prog, isn't it? You know, it, it is huge. It's, it is huge, and it's a monolith, and Mick Ronson's guitar playing is amazing. In fact, the whole band sound amazing on this record. That's what needs saying, and they will get through to the uh, live performances in a short while. Uh, but, yeah, just amazing, featuring Mick Ronson's lead guitar work and occasional choral effects from the band. This eight-minute song is divided into two parts. The music takes on heavy R&B quality in the second half where the narrator enjoys a sexual encounter with God or the devil or some other supernatural being according to different interpretations in the depths of hell. So Bowie was getting heavy here lyrically, wasn't he? Certainly. Yeah, okay, so he swallowed his pride and puckered his lips. And showed me the leather belt round his hips. My knees were shaking, my cheeks aflame. He said, you'll never go down to the gods again. Turn around, go back. He struck the ground, a cavern appeared. And I smelt the burning pit of fear. He crashed a thousand yards below. I said, do it again, do it again. Turn around, go back. His nebulous body swayed above. His tongue swollen with devil's love. A snake and I, a venom high. I said, do it again, do it again. Turn around, go back. Breathe, breathe, breathe deeply. As I was seething, breathing deeply. Spitting Sentry, horned and tailed. Waiting for you. So, I mean, it, it, yeah, it is strange, isn't it? Because uh, if you look at the influences on uh, on Bowie's career and the fact that he'd been through the, uh, the he'd been through the mod thing and all yeah. you know, different parts of his career. And, and as we know, Lionel Bart and Anthony Newley, he'd just gone through his kind of folky phase with the art slab and, and Dylan-esque uh, dabblings. Mm. Um, but this is like informed by stuff like Alistair Crowley and Nisha, it isn't is. it? Which we will, uh, we'll have a bit more of a look at that in a short while. So uh, on to all the Mad Men. Yeah, track two, one of a number of tunes on the album dealing with insanity. It's been described as depicting a world so bereft of reason that the last sane men are the ones in the asylums. And the tune itself opens with acoustic guitar and recorder before transforming into a heavy rocker featuring distorted guitar chords from Ronson and also Moog synth played by Ralph Mace. It ends with the chant, Zane, 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 ouvre la chien, which is the, uh, well, the latter phrase literally means open the dog. 
in French. And it's the only French that I know. Uh, so the production of the song also made use of very speed vocals, which Bowie had used before, but only on the Laughing Gnome, uh, which was for a diff- <laughs> completely different effect. That was in 1967. Yeah. And Bowie had said that the song was written for and about his half-brother, Terry. Um, uh, so uh, again, Terry just raising his head there. Mm. And the lyrics include references to lobotomy, the tranquilizer, Librium, and EST, which is also electroshock therapy, yeah. uh, and which is a controversial treatment for some types of deep depression and mental illness. So All the Mad Men was released by Mercury in edited form as a promo single featuring the same tune on both sides in America in December 1970 prior to Bowie going over there to do his promo work in early 71. An official release uh, featuring Janine, which is from this previous album, as the B-side is thought to have been planned but shelved and a handful of stock copies have been found. So in June 1973, RCA Records, which had reissued the song's parent album the previous year, issued All the Mad Men as a single in Eastern Europe backed with Soul Love from the uh, Z Stardust album. It's weird, isn't it? Because, I mean, they just uh, pluck in anything that they like to, to pair it up. I it mean, seems so random, doesn't it, all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be allowed now, put it that way. OK, so on to track three, which is Black Country Rock. So as well as appearing on the album, it was also issued as a B-side to Bowie's January 1971 single, Holy Holy. And its style has been compared to Mark Boland's contemporary Tyrannosaurus Rex down to Bowie's uh, vibrato in the final verse. Mm, according to Tony Visconti, Bowie had the music ready by the start of the sessions, but the words were a last-minute addition in the studio. The singer doing his Boland impression spontaneously, said Visconti, because he ran out of lyrics. We all think it was cool, so it stayed. Fair right. enough. He's all very, right. very uh, transparently Boland, isn't Certainly. he? Certainly very much. So we move on to After All now, which is one of a number of Bowie tunes from the early 70s, from that time, reflecting the influence of uh, Nietzsche and also Alistair Crowley, as you just mentioned. It's been described by uh, biographer David Buckley as the album's hidden gem. Nicholas Pegg calls it one of Bowie's most underrated recordings. And the song's been interpreted as taking to nightmarish conclusions the children's world of Bowie's early tune, There is a Happy Land, from his... uh, debut in 1967 so there are threads to the past here aren't there in you know however tenuous yeah i mean well most artists did that i mean if you look at uh well you look no further than lou reed who was a master of it wasn't it yeah the records that he made from 1970 in this solo styling was always made up of uh, just a ragtag kind of uh things that he'd had stored away done demos for half written songs and all that kind of stuff and so yeah i mean bowie had a a massive uh, back catalogue to Mm. run out of songs didn't he that he'd that he'd uh, racked up behind him. Okay, so the track is unusual in a rock context for being in a waltz time, most obviously in the surreal circus-like instrumental break. Its style was inspired by the slightly sinister, measured melancholy of songs Bowie recalled from childhood, such as Danny Kaye's Inchworm, which again we've discussed before. Yeah. Regarding the music's arrangement, producer Tony Visconti said the basic song and the Oh by Jingo line were David's ideas. The rest was Rono and me vying for the next overdub, <laughs> which is great. You know, this is very... Um, and Woody's said exactly the same thing. And it reminds me a little bit of the band Cream. Now, we know that Mick Ronson was mad on Cream. Yeah. Uh, and, and they notoriously, when they would be playing live particularly, they would just wait for a little crack of light to shine through so that they could jump in and do their own solo. So, you know, it, it, it was like a competition. So yeah, it, Eric like... Clapton would be firing away, doing one of his solos. Now, and if he just took a little breather, Ginger Baker would be off doing a, a drum solo and with Jack Bruce looking on thinking, me next, me next. Yeah, well, that was the thing. That was one of the reasons why Cream split, wasn't it? Because they were all, it was all, it just became a competition. 
competition on stage. Right, okay. Well, Woody said that. He said that he, this was just this album was a great opportunity for them both to show off because, I yeah. mean, they'd not really done much recording before, had they? So, yeah, they, that's right. they, they, yeah kids in a sweet shop. Definitely. Okay, so we move on to Running Gun Blues now, which is a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Uh, Nick, yeah. Nicholas Pegg in The Complete David Bowie describes it as uh, taking an unusually direct lyrical line. Bowie assumes the persona of a deranged Vietnam War veteran who indulges in a killing spree at home. There'd been similar real-life atrocities in America around that time, so it's likely the song was a reflection of all that. Right, okay. So, uh, yeah, the, the words are pretty grim, they actually. Are, yeah, yeah, but look- I'll slip out again tonight because they haven't taken back my rifle, for I promote oblivion and I'll plug a few civilians. Yeah, it's really dark, isn't it? So uh, move on to Saviour Machine. Okay, mate. So again, courtesy of Nick Pegg's book, apparently Bowie finished the lyrics to Saviour Machine in the early hours of the morning after being pushed by Visconti to get it finished. It's a dystopian tale which uh, preempts the bleak world of diamond dogs. It really, it really yeah. does. And it's a tale of the power hungry and those happy to follow them blindly. Okay, it is an amazing tune, that, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Uh, she Shook Me Cold, another melodramatic piece. Mick Ronson's gu- uh, solo guitar influenced by Cream, Led Zeppelin. And, of course, Jeff Beck, who's his big hero. Working title of this tune was Suck, and its title bears a resemblance to the Muddy Waters tune, You Shook Me, recorded by Jeff Beck for the then-recent album Truth. Okay, so this was described, again, by Nick Pegg as competent early 70s rock, but it's hardly a David Bowie song at all. Now, Nick knows he's Bowie. He's a massive Bowie fan, yeah. and that book of his is just incredible it and it gets updated you know all the time and I've got loads of different versions of it mm. uh, but I have to disagree on this particular occasion I mean I know that the he uh, says here that it's a little more than a swaggering rock and roll boast about sexual conquest with a little occult nastiness thrown yeah, in okay. great what more could you want <laughs> yeah, really exactly, and yeah. I think it's just a, a really really great song I just love the riffing on it so yeah, yeah each to their own eh? of course of course you know so uh, the man who sold the world now the title track so in common with a number of tunes on the album the song's themes have been compared to the horror fantasy works of H.P. Lovecraft and the lyrics also cited as reflecting Bowie's concerns with splintered or multiple personalities believed to have been partially inspired by a poem by William Hughes Mearns called Antagonish. In the BBC Radio 1 special programme, Changes Now Bowie, which uh, was broadcast in January 1997, Bowie was interviewed by Marianne Hobbs and was asked about this tune. He said, uh, I guess I wrote it because there's a part of myself that I was looking for. Maybe now that I feel more comfortable with the way that I live my life and my mental state. And he's kind of laughing slightly here, wasn't he? And my spiritual state, whatever, maybe I feel there's some kind of unity now. Yeah, he went on to say, uh, that song for me always exemplified kind of how you feel when you're young, when you know that there's a piece of yourself that you have haven't really put together yet you have this great searching this great need to find out who you really are and so Bowie was obviously still scratching around and this is an interesting point we were talking about it before weren't we Bob but Hmm. if you if you look at uh, the man who sold the world and then you look at Ziggy Stardust you can see just uh, the 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 moving on of the career can't you You can see the step from one to the other yeah but when you put Hunky Dory into the middle of it, it just throws it completely. I often say that the release of uh, the uh, Radiohead albums are, would seem chronologically wrong. Yeah. You know, yeah. because you can see the way that they're going and then it just takes a few little diversions and comes back on board again. And with this, if you were to look at the rock album, where they're still trying to find the feet, the band have just got together and, and they've got an idea of what they want to do, but they've not really harnessed it into any kind of a feasible uh, commercial outlet. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, but you do it. And it's a great, great record. Like I say, I absolutely love it. And then it all comes together and you've got the perfect package in Ziggy Stardust. In the middle of that, you've got this amazing singer-songwriter album. That's which, the thing. And which, as we know, he, he recorded 
did Hunky Dory and then forgot it pretty much as soon as he'd done it because he was uh, into recording Ziggy Stardust even before Hunky Dory was out. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it is weird. If some aliens were to come down and put David Bowie's albums from, you know, 1970 to 1980 and then what would they uh, consider to be the chronological order? They would pretty much get it wrong, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, it, had Hunky Dory not been there, it's possible to draw a line in it from Man Who Sold the World right through to Diamond Dogs, definitely. Or even if you look at the fact that if it was to follow on from Space Oddity, yeah. that would have made sense. Yeah. You know, because with all the epic and the, uh, the the epic songs on Space Oddity, you could see that leading into Life on Mars and mm. Boulay Brothers and Quicksand and all that. And then, yeah, okay, you, you're getting onto this rock tip, you know? But, uh, but obviously, that's not the way that it happened. And that's one of the reasons, of course, why we love him, isn't it? Uh, we've also talked about, we've mentioned in L, Lulu doing a cover of The Man Who Sold the World. Midge Yore did it as well, didn't he, in 1982? That passed me by, to be honest. Uh, I missed that as well, but it, apparently it's on the Party Party original motion uh, picture soundtrack. We've right. also mentioned the fact that Nirvana did it. It was a big favourite of Kurt Cobain's. Bowie was really made up about this, wasn't it? And we know that Bowie uh, really loved it when young bands would uh, would pay homage to him. You yeah. Know? And you could tell that even bands that were obviously influenced by him, like Swade, you know, and so there was that enemy cover photo with uh, Brett Anderson and, and Placebo yeah. and Smashing Pumpkins all these bands who would say yeah we love David Bowie it, it thrilled Bowie that because mm. and I think that you know it's a strange one really but I, I also think that uh, he, he liked coming on the Radio 1 programme with Mark Radcliffe and I because we were the last bastion of Bowie nuts at right. Radio 1 and so if it hadn't have been for Radcliffe and I he would have been designated a Radio 2 artist and he really oh. really wouldn't have wanted that no offence to Radio 2 no. and so that's why uh, he would come and visit us regularly on the programme because you know he wanted to, he wanted to be part of uh, something not seen to be you know uh, a past it you yeah, know and, yeah. like, and 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 almost looking at a different audience there a more mature audience and so when Nirvana did it he was absolutely made up and he said I was simply blown away when I found out that Kurt Cobain liked my work and I've always wanted to talk to him about his reasons for covering the man who sold the world and that it was a good straightforward rendition and sounded somehow very honest it would have been nice to have worked with him. But just talking with him would have been real cool. Oh, wow, nice. And he also said uh, that he thought that the cover was heartfelt, and he said that until this cover, it hadn't occurred to me that I was part of America's musical landscape. I always felt my weight in Europe, but not in the US. That uh, seems like such a remarkable thing to say, doesn't it? When it you does, think of he... all the success he'd had by that point. Yeah, but it is it is strange, you know. I mean, it's often that Milli Vanilli fact, if it is a fact, the line being that the first Milli Vanilli album, or the big one, mm. sold more than David Bowie's entire back catalogue in America right. up to that point, you know. Ooh, um, okay. But he had number ones and, and was an icon. But yeah. yeah. All right. So in the wake of its release, Bowie bemoaned the fact that when he performed at the number himself, he would encounter kids that come up afterwards and say, hey, it's cool you're doing a Nirvana song. And I think, F you, you little tosser. That must have driven him <laughs> nuts, really. On the 14th of February 2016, surviving Nirvana band members Chris uh, Novoselic and uh, Dave Grohl and Pat Smear turned up with Beck to perform The Man Who Sold the World at a pre-Grammy Awards party, in tribute to Bowie, of course, with uh, Beck performing the vocals. And in 2017, to mark what would have been Kurt Cobain's 50th birthday, the Phonographic Performance Limited released a list of the top 20 most played Nirvana songs on TV and radio in the UK, in which The Man Who Sold the World 
was ranked at number six. Okay. And they also did a louder, rockier version of it as well. All right. So the Superman, this is one of my favourites. Also one of a number of pieces on the album inspired by Nietzsche and H.P. Lovecraft. Been cited as reflecting the influence of German romanticism, theme and lyrics reflecting the apocalyptic visions of Nietzsche. Bowie said later, I was still going through the thing when I was pretending that I understood Nietzsche and I tried to translate it into my own terms uh, to understand it. So Superman came out of that. Critics have also seen the influence of H.P. Lovecraft's stories of dormant elder gods. This is really interesting, actually. According to Bowie, the the actual riff for the song was given to him, gifted to him by Jimmy Page uh, when they were at a recording session for I Pity the Fool, which was being produced by Shel Talney. Wow. And so, and I had heard this before, um, and it also tips up again in Dead Man Walking, but apparently Jimmy Page was playing it in the studio and Bowie said, oh, I really like that riff. And, And Jimmy Page says... I don't know what to do with it, really. You can have it. Wow, and he took it. He did, but he I, did. but he didn't give Jimmy Page a credit. And you would wonder whether Jimmy Page was saying, yeah, yeah you can use it if you want. But yeah. I don't, I, obviously, again, we weren't there, but um, he, he didn't get a credit anyway. Okay. But, uh, you know, he, looking at this album, uh, it's, uh, you know, one of those albums that never really got a proper outing live, did it? Well, they didn't really tour it, did they? No. I mean, the, the closest that they ever got was the, the few gigs that their hype did. Yeah. Okay, there's also the story about Bowie. We've, we've touched on it before, particularly from uh, Tony Visconti saying that Bowie had to be cajoled into contributing to the album because he was so besotted with his new wife Angie. That's right. I mean, we know, of course, don't we, that Mick Ronson had a sort of formal education in composing and arranging, and this is where he really comes through as a force. So his contributions, you know, they can't be kind of over-exaggerated, can they? Under the guidance, has to be said, of Tony Visconti, who's learning from all the time. And so, uh, you know, this story that Bowie didn't really do much was refuted by Ralph Mace, who played on the Moog. And he sort of gave Bowie the benefit of the doubt. He said he was more involved than others have actually suggested. And he said what he wanted, he sort of, he knew what he wanted and what he didn't want. So there was this sort of grey area in the middle. And he said it was a case of the others trying to get there. And then as soon as Bowie sort of had this sort of almost this elusive thing in his head that he could identify all of a sudden, then he knew he had a song. So it's a strange way of making an album, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, and let's face it, the band were new together, weren't they? Yeah, you know, of course. So they were kind of finding the feet, really. And, and and again, living in poverty and all that kind of stuff. So it, it was a strange time for Bowie. Uh, he, he described the whole recording scenario for The Man Who Sold the World as a nightmare. And he's saying it was recorded when I was at my most up. Uh, mm-hmm. holding on to some kind of flag for hashish. Though, again, just conversely, the other band members don't back this story up at all. So no. Bowie, Bowie is like uh, giving off the story that he was just stoned all the time and the band were going, well, he wasn't. So, well, well, there were a lot of changes. Well, I mean, it's been like, you know, obviously in Bowie's life, because his dad had died not long before. Mm. And, he, you know, Angie was there, just got married and he was missing his dad terribly, still troubled by Terry's situation, of course. And he would be, you know, reflected in the lyrics, you know, worried about his own mental state and the rest of it. At the same time, you know, the hippie movement had really gone. It was the start of a new era. So it was changes all everything was it seemed to be in flux. And, like, and, and Bowie was in flux, too, wasn't he, I think? Yeah, you'd have to wonder as well who introduced Davy Bowie to the works of... Of, uh, Alistair Crowley and Nietzsche and, yeah. and also Cahill Gibran as well I ah. mean you, you know so uh, these things that they, they had a massive impact on, on Bowie's writing didn't they and lest we forget you know uh, holy holy Right, we need oh. to talk about the band Holy Holy, which in essence is Woody Woodmansey and Tony Visconti and Glenn Gregory. Yeah, and we've also got in there just the amazing dual guitars of Paul Cudderford and James Stevenson. That's right, yeah, and very well, the people have been involved as well, you know, Terry Edwards and, and yeah, lots of different people, mm. uh, but. I've seen uh, Holy Holy twice, okay? And they did uh, the two different tours. And the first tour that I saw was them doing The Man Who Sold the World. And I have to say, 
it was jaw dropping. I, I I didn't know what to expect, and I've I have been to see one David Bowie tribute band, and I lasted ten minutes. I just can't really? abide. I don't right. like tribute bands anyway. But seeing somebody trying to emulate Bowie and mm. uh, and not nailing it, it's just it it didn't work for me personally. Uh, though it, it seems to be quite popular these days. But you have to say, Glenn Gregory oh. is amazing because he he, he he can reach all of those notes. He can sing it and and pull it off brilliantly. But he doesn't try and impersonate Bowie, which was crucial. That's the thing is, because I, I didn't see the Man Who Sold The World tour itself, but I saw them doing the Ziggy tour, in which they played a couple of tunes from the Man Who Sold The World, and I'm going into it, I was thinking, oh, I just hope he's not trying to do a bit of a kind of stars in your eyes thing and, and be Bowie, and he didn't. You know, to his credit, he was brilliant, and a great, really charismatic frontman. The way he fronted those tunes was just spectacular. Yeah, I mean, do you know, I heard years ago that there was uh, some talk of a, a Bowie a Bowie act coming out on the road with Woody Woodman's yeah, and Trevor Boulder. Right. Now, of course, sadly, Trevor Boulder passed away. And so, uh, and well, if this is the way that it all transpired, I'm guessing that then uh, it was thought, right, well, Tony Visconti, you know, mm. is, is an obvious go-to man as well, which then gave them the opportunity to go out for the first time and perform this album in its entirety and brilliantly, but sadly, without David Bowie. Yeah. But if you're looking at the original rhythm section from that album, doing it, it was just it was just jaw-dropping. I loved the Ziggy show as well. I yeah. thought it was great. Yeah. But watching uh, all of everything was just completely nailed on, you know, oh. and 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 it was absolutely brilliant. And that, I think they're doing it again, actually. Yeah, they are, aren't they? I mean, well, it must have been so liberating for uh, Woody and uh, Tony Visconti to do that as well, because it, it really is stuff that you can get your teeth into as a musician, I would imagine. Much as I love Ziggy, of course, you know, it, the material itself is overly familiar. So when they went into stuff like With the Circle uh, and the rest, of it, that was the, for me, that was the standout stuff because they're just begging to be played live. And, you know, being a bit of a spod, as I know you are as well, Bob. Yeah. I mean, thinking, right, OK, well, I'm watching these songs being performed here by the people who performed it originally. That was really important, you yeah. know. And obviously Trevor Boulder was on um, Ziggy Stardust, so it made a slight difference. But, uh, yeah, I just have to say that anybody who's not seen Holy Holy, I personally would uh, just thoroughly recommend it. And if they're doing The Man Who Sold The World, then move heaven and earth to get there. Go see him. The A to Z of Davy Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Recorded and edited by Howard Nock. With social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode. The Manish Boys. Mary Hopkin. Main man. Mr. Fish. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.